There's something very special, isn't there, about togetherness, about belonging. Uh, and we, we belong in all sorts of different ways. We belong uh, maybe by choice. There are certain things that we want to belong to. Maybe we have certain interests that results in us getting together with other people of the same interest uh, and sharing in an activity or, or watching something, whether it's sport or whether it's uh, some sort of arts or whatever it might be. We, there is a sense of, of coming together and to, to belong. Uh, on one sense, that's, uh, that's important to us in terms of that idea of just feeling as though we have relationship. But on another level, there is something incredibly important about true belonging, about being part of a community. Community is one of those buzzwords. People are talking about community all over the place, but but community is an idea. It's something written into us as human beings. We need community. Some of us might decide, I don't need community. I'm going to keep away from community. Very often, one of the reasons that we keep away from community is not because we don't want it, but rather because maybe we've been hurt by it or because we struggle in it. Even those denials of community are often speaking about our desire for community. I won't go there because it hurt me last time I went there. Or I'm not very good at it. And therefore, I want to keep away from it. Community and belonging hit the news this week uh, with uh, Mark Zuckerberg speaking about the community of Facebook. It's a remarkable phenomenon, Facebook. There are now over 2 billion users, which makes it bigger than every religion with the exception of Christianity. On a global scale. That's a remarkable statistic, isn't it? Devised from his Harvard. Is that right? Social network film. Am I right? Somebody nod. It was his Harvard kind of bedroom with a couple of mates, some of which ended up not being mates anymore, putting together a bit of software, and it has just exploded. And of course, he's realizing. deeper and deeper levels of human nature as he's going on this journey. And he said this week that he declared Facebook that it could fill the gap in people's lives left by the decline of churches. It was said just in the past week that Facebook could fill people's lives in the decline that they are experiencing in churches. He said this, A lot of people now need to find a sense of purpose and support somewhere else. That's a really fascinating statement, isn't it? On a global scale, there is placarded in front of us, if we are remotely connected, this great statement that belonging is incredibly important to us. We want to belong. And so I ask the question, what does it mean when we gather in this way? What does it mean to belong in this way as we gather together today? We're not gathered in some sort of social media venture. 
although it might be that you're listening to this online. But as we gather in this room today, this isn't a social media venture. The church isn't a social media venture. So what is this? What is worship? And what does word and mind have to do about speaking on our belonging? That's a really important question for us to ask. And we're going to look at this reading, Nehemiah chapter 8. Jude mentioned that we realized why we got Paul to read that reading, didn't we? With all of those incredible names in it. Uh, In actual fact, um, I I chose it not thinking I was going to read and and that somebody's got their own back on me. Um, But we looked at this reading, Nehemiah chapter 8. It's a really important section of the Bible. God's people have experienced um, an exile. Let's paint, for those of you who are new to the Bible, let's paint a really big, broad-brush painting of the Old Testament. God's people are defined in the first uh, account of the Bible as those who are under God's hand, first creation. They rebel against God. God wipes out the world, and He rebuilds the world with those who have been saved from the flood. That's the picture that is painted in the early part. Then God uh, is silent until Abraham. Abraham established, establishes a family by the promise of God. They end up in Egypt. In Egypt, they grow to become a great number of people, and they eventually leave Egypt under threat, and they have established themselves now as not just a people, but a nation. They become a nation in this way. They receive God's law, a way to live. That's one of the things that makes us a nation. We have a law under which we live. They receive God's law. They have a promise of God's place, and they identify themselves as God's people. So they become this this nation of God's people. They finally, many contours, they end up in the land. Jerusalem is established, and the land is seen as God's people in God's place under God's law. That's the nation. Then there is a crisis. They are overthrown because they turn against God. Uh, Once again, this constant picture of God's people, which is, in one sense, it's a warning and it's refreshing. It says that our warning is we constantly have that danger of straying from being like God's people and being not like God's people. And we also have the faithfulness of God in spite of our failures. They are exiled, they're taken into exile, and they are now returning We come into the story as they're returning for a second time to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding Jerusalem under Nehemiah and Ezra. The city is being re-established. The walls are being built. They're rebuilding the temple. And they are coming closer once again to being God's people in God's place under God's rule. And we find that they've built the walls. The walls are now secured. Picture in the ancient world. The security of a city is about the security of the walls that surround it. From a tiny little village where there would be a mound and some some stone wall uh, with, with spears to ward off the other threatening village, right up to great cities of the ancient world. A wall that was surrounding. The wall is re-established in Jerusalem and they come to this point where they worship God. 
because they recognize that they are God's people once again. They have been returned, Jerusalem is being reestablished, and they become God's place, God's people in God's place under God's law. The city is settled, and a day of worship is called for. And we break into this chapter as we see them coming together to worship. And I want to, as we look through the text, uh, just pick out a few key ideas that we see. The first thing is that we see this. We see an encounter. An encounter with God. And the encounter comes from the motivation of the people. That's fascinating, isn't it? All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. So imagine you're now in this city. Behind you is is the water gate. The, the, The city is surrounded with wall and many gates. And the water gate is one of the ways out. And there is a great square in front of you. Uh, And everybody in the city is gathered in this square. And the people request, in fact it's even stronger, they tell Ezra to get the law. Look at what they say. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. There is a massive heart motivation here. There is a desperate desire which is not driven by Ezra, the the leader, the spiritual leader over God's people. There is a motivation from the heart of God's people for God's Word. Do you see that? Do you see that they asked for it? In fact, they tell Ezra, we are here, and one of the things that we now want is to hear the book of the law. They are reenacting a key moment in the Old Testament. They are reenacting that moment when Moses comes down from the mountain and he declares the law before the people. That's when they get the notion that they become God's people because they are coming under the law. And the people are saying, we are back. We are God's people and we want to hear the law. Why? Why is that? Why do they want to hear the law? This fluctuating, hot and cold, wandering people. This people who have faithful and faithless hearts. What what are they doing? Why are they asking for this? They know something. They understand something. At least in this moment. They know that when Ezra declares the law, they are not listening to a set of rules. They are encountering God. That's what they're doing. How else do we know who we are? We know we are God's people, and the only way that we can know that we are God's people is when we encounter God. How? Through the law. Why? Because communication is an essential element to true relationship, isn't it? Communication is an essential element. That idea is written into all of our, well, not all of our narratives, but many, many narratives. Let me just give you one example. And it's so simple. The story of Sleeping Beauty. Aurora 
has been cast into an endless sleep. And the prince has heard about Aurora. Doesn't know her. He's heard about her. Then he sees her, finally. This is one of those stories where I'm absolutely confident there's no spoiler alert necessary. We all know how it ends. He sees her. He kisses her. She wakes up, and it is at that point when he truly knows her. When communication begins, that's really knowing. It was, it's there in Sleeping Beauty. It's there really powerfully in the film Avatar. They use a slightly different kind of concept. They say, they say, I see you. Do you remember that? It's a refrain constantly throughout the film. I see you. What are they saying? They're not saying, I see you. They are saying we are intimately connected. We know each other. There is is communication going on. And what God's people understood at this point in time is to truly know God is to encounter God in communication. This is not the reading of a set of laws. When we read the book of the law of Moses, don't fall into that uh, kind of idea. God's people know that they need to encounter the communicating God. That is a great idea, isn't it? Do you know what? I wish that we had more times in our lives when we experienced this. I wish we had more times when we had that that movement going on inside of us, that response going on as we gather together where collectively we're saying we need to hear God. Because that's what gathering together in this way is. That's what God communicating is. They're reading sets of words. They're reading sets of instructions. But they're encountering God in those very words, in those very instructions. How does law do that? How does law do that? Well, we move from encounter to understanding. Next concept in this passage. First is encounter. Second is understanding. Look at uh, uh, verse 2 and verse 3. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Do you see that? That They stood there, Ezra is on, is stood up on a great wooden platform and he is reading out to the people in front of him words. He's reading words. And those words that he reads out are formed into sentences and those sentences are formed in our language, maybe not in Hebrew, but they're, they're, they're formed into paragraphs 
But both mean what? They communicate ideas. They make statements. How do we know God? That's a key question, isn't it? How do we know God? We live in a world, we live in a generation where the idea of knowing God can be some kind of floaty experience. Some kind of la-di-da, head in the clouds, let's shape God out of Play-Doh. And that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is formed before us in words. And that's why Nehemiah is making a point here about the people having understanding so that they can comprehend these words and begin to come to terms with the God that is presented to them. Let me be really clear about this. We cannot know God, the God of the Bible, outside of the words of the Bible. We can't. Now let me qualify that. The way in which we might first encounter God may be many and varied. I am not disputing how we might first encounter God. But the things that we decide to say are true representations of God and aren't true representations of God are formed by the words that the Bible puts in front of us. And those words are cold and dry in and of themselves. And then the power of God by the power of the Holy Spirit combines with those and they live together. That's why Jesus makes it really clear that some are blinded to these words. Some are blinded to these words. They're the same words. But some people are blinded to them and some people are not blinded to them. Some people are enlivened by them. Why? Because it's the words on the page and the power of the living God in the present Holy Spirit which come together and speak to my mind, not in academic constructions, but in me being able to understand what God is like. Let me just, let me just try to make it, and, and make it clear that it is in, it's not making it smart and clever and highbrow. It's making it simply understandable. Let me describe it in this way. When the Bible says, God is love... It's not saying God is a loving God, although He is. It's saying the very idea of true love is God. It's also saying, in all sorts of different ways, let me paraphrase it, you have rebelled and you need the mercy of that loving God. They are not complicated words, are they? That's what is so beautiful about this understanding bit. But understanding is more, more important later on. So it's, it's recognized there. 
Now, this idea of understanding, it is debated. What does it mean? Is it, is it the idea of age, people who are old enough to understand? That's one idea. Is it the idea of um, maybe uh, many of them, because they've been drawn back from many nations, coming back to Jerusalem from exiled places, maybe they don't know Hebrew. And so as Ezra is reading Hebrew, he wouldn't, they wouldn't have understood as a little little point of interest. When the, when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, that's when Jewish people started to insist on everybody being able to read. Isn't that fascinating? Before that, they were pretty much like the rest of the world. Small number of people could read. AD 70 was the turning point. And so we have maybe a language barrier, maybe we have an age barrier. At least what it's saying is you've got to understand it. I think, I think it's not about language. I think it's about understanding the ideas behind it. And the reason I say this is because later on, let's read verse 7 and 8. Later on it says this, the Levites, and I'm going to miss out all the names now, The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. See that? That's what happened. They gave the meaning so that they understood what was being read. They were engaging from my perspective, and I think this is then borne out in the rest of the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. They are engaging in precisely what we are doing right at this moment. We are worshipping by having God's Word before us, which is understandable to us all in in the language that it is written, but there is a next stage, which is the presentation of the ideas that are behind it. Do you see what this means? Do you see how this shapes our lives? Do you see how it it speaks into this situation and it speaks into that situation? Do you see what it means for God to be a God of love? Do you see what it means for God to be a God of justice? All of those are meanings which are there in the text, but it takes for us to get together in this way and for us to share together in God's Word, for us to understand and then for us to walk away and for us to be challenged or encouraged challenged and encouraged by God's Word so that we leave having worshipped by making ourselves subject to God speaking. Isn't that that an amazing picture? Firstly, that He trusts other human beings to share his word. I think that is incredibly, it's terrifying from my point of view. It's humbling, but it's also very securing. 
because of this. There might be moments when I get it wrong. But I'm not stood as God above. I'm stood shoulder to shoulder with us all before this word as we share together, as we tussle with it, as it challenges us, as new ideas break out in front of us. Why? Because we are together worshipping God in His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit as we seek understanding from His Word. And it is because of this that our God is a logical God. (laughs) Now, let me just define that. Logical, we have limits on our logic and the understanding of God is way beyond the limits of our logic. But God is at least this. He is a communicating God, and therefore He speaks to us. He is a comforting God, and therefore He speaks words of comfort that we can hear and be encouraged with. And He is a confronting God, because He speaks words that at times we don't like to hear, but we need to hear. That's great news, that He's all of those things. If God is always a comforting God and never a confronting God, then I can, make my, I can make my God be whatever I need. But equally, if He is always a confronting God and never a comforting God, He becomes a despot that crushes me. But a communicating God is both. A God that shapes us and changes us and and brings His Word to us and and causes us, hopefully by God's grace, to walk away from here and over the next few days let little explosions go off in our mind as we think about another little bit of what we've shared in God's Word. That is an amazing thing. So we have an encounter, we have understanding, and we have response. A response. A true life encounter with God must at some point include mourning. I am not saying that every encounter with God must be mourning. I am saying that if we, if we say we have truly encountered God and seeing that God has not caused us to mourn, then we have never truly encountered God. That, that's, that's pretty, that is a huge claim, isn't it? But it is because He's a confronting God, and we see the people here responding in just that way. Look at verse 9. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. So imagine, there's a great party going on. Do you say do not mourn or weep? No. Why? Because people aren't mourning and weeping. You say do not mourn and weep because the people that you are with are mourning and weeping. Why? 
Because when they are confronted with the communication of God, when they see God in His law, they understand firstly what He is like, and secondly, they understand what they are like. And when those two things go together, it can only firstly result in one thing, which is mourning. (laughs) It's like, I am broken. I am broken. Because when I look at what God is really like, and then what I look at who I am, I am not worthy. I am not worthy to be in His presence. And yet the people are told, don't mourn and weep. Why? Because God is a God of redemption. God is a God of restoration. God is a God of recovery. God is a God of mercy and kindness and love and compassion. And therefore, even though we have every reason to mourn, they are told, be joyful, be happy. Why? Because even though you are those people who should be mourning, don't forget, you are God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. That's who you are. That's what the people understood. Let me just, like some kind of kaleidoscope roller coaster, fly forward thousands of years to now and say this, exactly the same applies. If you trust in Jesus, you are God's people. You are part of His kingdom. You are under His rule. He is the same God of of mercy and kindness and, and justice and restoration. As He was then, He is now. And therefore, He says, rejoice. I know that when we truly encounter God, we mourn. But he is the God that turns tears to joy. When Jesus came, some people didn't see this. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus is saying, I wanted to stand in the place of that word that Ezra spoke out in front of the water gate. I wanted to gather you together in Jerusalem and listen to not the word that is written, but the word that is living in front of you and you would not come. I wanted to do that. I sought to gather you to bring, isn't that a beautiful picture? Fragile, little chicks being gathered under the wings of the mother hen to protect. It is a beautiful picture. And Jesus says, I wanted to do that with you, and you wouldn't come. It's what I wanted. Why? 
Because the word that is written has become the word that is present and living and speaking. Why? Because the word that back there that Ezra wrote was a pen portrait of God. It was a pen portrait of God. And now the pen portrait of God has been the present, living, displayed portrait of God. What did they say to the people? Nehemiah said, verse 10, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's great, isn't it? What he says. Joy of the Lord. What's the joy of the Lord? Well, let me just give you one picture of the joy of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says this, For the joy set before Him, Jesus, He endured the cross. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Scorn it, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is the joy of Jesus? I'm victorious, <laughs> is the joy of Jesus. And so he says to you and me today, I want to gather you under my wings. It's no longer Jerusalem and a square in front of the water gate. It's an eternal gathering. I want to gather you under my wings and protect you and draw you home and bring you to a place of absolute security. You see, Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook can never replace the church. It never can. You are onto something. I'd... Back in, back in the 60s, John Lennon just kind of compared the Beatles to Jesus Christ. And the whole of the church were up in arms because of it. But you know, he was on to something in one sense. He was saying there is a movement that is looking to something for security. And Mark Zuckerberg, you're on to something. People are looking for something. They are looking to belong. They are wanting to be part of something. But you see, the problem that you've got is the problem that humanity has always had. You are placing us on the throne. You see, Facebook is all about the elevation of us. It puts us at the center. And it says it's all about me and my well-being, my security, my sense of belonging is all about me. What does this say? What does this passage say? What were the people doing? What are we doing right now? We are saying it is not all about me. It is all about Jesus. My security, my comfort, my joy come from outside of me. They reside in Him. That's why Facebook can never replace the great message of the gospel of Jesus. Because when we try to self-satisfy, we always fail. 
because it is idolatrous and it can never work for us. But when Jesus is elevated in his word, then there is hope. Let me conclude with one final thought. Sometimes we want the church to be like Facebook. We want us to feel good by being a part of it. We want to feel as if we belong. Let me make it really clear. If you are the kind of person who doesn't feel as if you belong, feels as if you are always on the edge, let me make it really clear. You, this afternoon, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are not on the edge. You are as close as all of us because it is Jesus that is at the center. It is not the kind of social capability of this particular congregation which will fail. We gather and we worship Jesus through His Word. We engage with what He says, and then we say, I belong. I belong. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength.